Let's go ahead and open in prayer. Father, we give thanks that you love us, that you sent your Son for us, and that you've called us out of darkness into light. You've made us a people. Right now, even now, you're forming a glorious cosmic temple out of human stones, people who've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And so, Father, as we come under your word today, we pray that you might uh, help us to receive it, and believe it, and walk according to it. We love you. and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, we're looking at Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, and maybe if we get through there, we'll look 7 through 16 as well. Um, but there's a lot going on. Um, and I, I was gifted uh, probably the two most difficult portions of Ephesians to deal with, and two most contentious. So we're going to start out with the least contentious, uh, and go from there. Hopefully we'll run out of time and I'll avoid all the fiery arrows that... Ooh, fiery arrows has bad connotations. Those are from Satan. Not from you. Okay. Um, so, Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, which is an interesting thing about uh, illustrations. As I was drawing an illustration here earlier, I started drawing a steam locomotive. Steam locomotives, of course, require energy from outside. I guess all locomotives do. Illustrations kind of suck in that regard, because they never do exactly what they want you to do. But follow me along here. I'm just going to introduce you to uh, a train, right? Trains have the means of pulling cargo behind it, okay? They've got the horsepower and the torque and the wherewithal to do all the pulling. Um, on the other hand, carts, whether it's a freight cart, a tea cart, uh, whatever kind of cart, they don't have the motivation within them. They don't have the energy. They don't have the go-go juice. So they don't travel. Okay, They're subject to the power and the impulse of something else. Okay, um, For our sake today, we have a train climbing an unbelievably steep hill, one that's challenging the ability of physics, I'm sure, with steel wheels and rails and all. But that's besides the point. It is an illustration, and they're all not going to work perfectly. Um, but I would submit to you that uh, you know this relationship that we're seeing with the train here is kind of what's going on in Ephesians chapter four verses one through six. There is a link pin, okay? There's a link pin in the argument. The argument that Paul has been making is that Christ, our great Redeemer, has come and made two people into one: Jews and Gentiles, by the work of the cross, have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, okay? That Christ is our Savior, that you were dead in your sins, but you're not that anymore because you've been given a new nature. You've been gifted with heavenly life, and you've been called to live out that heavenly life. So that brings us to the question of how is that heavenly life lived out? How do you live for the glory of God? How do you act as a billboard advertising for the kingdom of heaven? Well, it doesn't come naturally. It comes because you're united by means of a link pin in this illustration by faith to Christ. Okay, there's faith in Christ. As a result, that freight train is going to be able to do. It's going to be able to move in the direction that its head is pulling. Okay, And the direction, of course, you could guess is heaven, right? So... You know, in Bunyan's language, the tour to the heavenly city is motivated, empowered, enabled only by Christ, who is our head and our locomotive. And so for our purposes here, 
there's infinite horsepower and infinite torque. Um, but what happens, for example, for those that don't have a link pin? Okay, well, that card is going nowhere. The works that Paul says in Ephesians 2.11 or so-ish, 10.11, that God has predestined for us to do beforehand, um, they're not going to happen. Okay? Now, we do have good works amongst people who are not Christians, and, you know, Calvin calls them virtuous pagans, and there's, you know, you, you bear the image of God and you do good things. We don't walk around as humans doing the most awful thing conceivable all the time. That's not what total depravity teaches. But, uh, you know, if there's no faith, there's no means of reflecting our heavenly city. So that's the sort of basic illustration that we're starting out with today. And uh, we'll look at that as we look at Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. Um, Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 6. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the... I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself. We're going to stop there at verse 6. Um, so, I submit to you that this basic illustration of the locomotive and the carts is a fair illustration for what we find today in Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. It sets before us the relationship between the gospel of Jesus Christ, which empowers us, and the life that must follow from those who confess the gospel. In other words, we're talking about the relationship between doctrine and life. Okay? What God has done for us, what he's made for us, what he's made us to be, and what he's called us to be. So this is, you know, the sort of grand distinction in the Shorter Catechism. 1 through 38 is dealing with, you know, the duty, uh, what we're to believe concerning God. And 38 and on deals with, uh, 39 and on deals with, you know, the duty that God requires of man. Okay? That's the, that's the issue here. And, 4 verse 1 is that link pin. The relationship between who we are and what we do is a staple item in all of Paul's writings. For example, in Romans chapters 1 through 11, we see Paul focus on what God has done for us. But then he hits that link pin and he says, therefore, right? Therefore, therefore I urge you, this is 12.1 of Romans, therefore I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Paul structures this relationship between what we are to believe and what we are to do in the same way in Ephesians. Ephesians begins by stating the believers are, are righteous and seated in the heavens, verse 2.6. Ephesians ends with the image of our feet firmly established on earth, however, called to fight Satan in all of his manifestations. Chapter 6, verse 10. This progression from who we are, that is, heavenly seated sons of God, to what we are to do, namely fight Satan, is clearly seen in 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. This quick survey of some of Paul's writings in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 in particular 
should serve as a personal warning from our triune God. What's the warning? The warning is we must be created in Christ before we can proceed to talk about our good works. Works acceptable to God are only accomplished by the one created for that task. To speak of good works apart from our new nature in Christ is like trying to move a train by means of the caboose. It doesn't work. With our new nature in mind, Paul is calling us to make manifest every spiritual blessing that Christ has lavished upon us. He's calling us to be what we are. We must not imagine that Paul adopted this writing structure because he picked it up in his preaching style and analysis class. He didn't pick it up from Aristotle as a means of being persuasive. No, this is the warp and the woof of the biblical pattern. Okay, There's what God does, and then there's what we do. We do what we do because God has done, and he's called us to be like him. We are his image bearers as a verb, by the way. We must not imagine that, uh, yeah, Paul's not just doing this. He didn't pick it up from his preaching class. Sorry, this was originally taught during a preaching class. Um, and I guess that was a dig at what we were doing there. Um, no, it's God's purpose that the right doctrine leads to right life. They're inseparable. That link is not a link that will be broken. Okay, It's an inseparable reality. Thus, we can't read Ephesians 4 through 6 apart from 1 through 3. Conversely, we can't read 1 through 3 apart from 4 through 6. Either error would be an impoverishment of what it means to be Christian. As we move from these general considerations to what Paul is calling us to do in light of our new natures, we'll look at this in three points. First, walk worthily. Second, can we walk worthily? And third, how? How do we walk worthily? Okay, we'll look at how we walk worthily both generally and specifically. So our first point, Paul has turned the page as it were and he's calling us to the imperative, right? In different categories we could use, you know, this locomotive of course is the indicative and that's just a fancy word used from grammar to indicate what? Who we are. I know I have a bad, yeah. If I write while I talk, you're not going to read it. Sorry. But anyhow, the indicative is indicating. It's indicating what's true of you. What is true of you in Christ? By means of your faith relationship with him, you are a heavenly seated son or daughter of God. Okay? Now, there's consequences. There's things that need to happen as a result. God doesn't just, you know, you know Romans 4, 5 says God justifies the wicked. He doesn't leave you wicked. Okay? There's a lot of wickedness in our lives. That's true but he's calling us and sanctifying us and cleansing us as we live the Christian life. And that's only done by faith in Christ. So the imperative is the commands of Scripture. Okay? So sometimes when preachers or teachers talk about indicative, that's all they're saying. That there's something true of you in Christ, indicating what's true of you. And then there's imperative. And that's what we see, you know, uh, again, Ephesians 1 through 4, Ephesians 4 through 6, uh, Romans 1 through 11... Uh, uh, you know, Romans 12, what is it, 16 Romans goes to? I don't remember. But th that's the, the pattern of Paul, Pauline theology, okay? So Ephesians 4.1, Therefore I, a prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you've been called. The therefore in 4.1 unites Paul's proclamation of the gospel and who we are by its power to his exhortation to walk in accordance with our call. 
Ephesians 4.1 is the link pin between the gospel and, how, and our works that flow from the gospel. This, therefore, has the thrust of a conclusion to a previous argument, namely chapters 1 through 3, right? It's a call to live a life, walk in light of God's graciousness, as evidenced in chapters 1 through 2. It is made explicit by the Apostle's reference to our calling, which reaches all the way back to 118. With chapters 1 and 2 of Ephesians in mind, Paul in 4.1 implores us, admonishes us, exhorts us to walk in a manner worthy of our call. Paul urges this on us, for he knows that this is not something contrary to our new nature. Think about that. Paul urges this upon you because he knows it is not contrary to your new nature. Let's imagine that, you know, what's going on here? Is Paul asking us to do something that is not within our being? It would be a cruel game indeed if Paul thought that we were still dead in our sins and transgressions, and yet he somehow beckons us to somehow get our stinking carcasses up to walk in a manner worthy, right? That's a cruel game. I know as Reformed people, we have a, you know, the stereotype of Reformed people is that all we do is talk about how bad we are. And certainly that is a huge biblical theme, okay? Uh, and by our faith union with Christ, we don't somehow become extinguished, uh, you know, of, of our wickedness in, in terms of behavior, okay? Our, we, we confess that, you know, every action of ours is tainted by sin in terms of our thoughts and our words and our deeds, wow. and that's true. Um, but that doesn't mean that we don't have a nature. The, the issue with the Christian is, because of this faith union with Christ, we now have something we didn't have. And this does not pan out so well for those who buy into the God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and happy crowd. Okay, You have a battle! Congratulations! You're a Christian! You have a new nature! Now things are going to get real, right? Uh, it's it's going to get messy. Um, you have a battle going on within you. Okay? That is the old nature and the new nature. Well, to further this uh, point, you know, if, if Paul is, if he thinks that we're still, you know, like the Gentiles that haven't come to faith, um, that they're still dead in sins, uh, if he thinks that and then calls us in 4-1 to walk in a manner worthy, uh, isn't he basically calling Ezekiel's valley of dead bones to get up like you or I, just, hey guys, you go to a graveyard. Good luck with that one, right? It's not going to happen. But uh, that, is, that is not what Paul's doing. No, God has made you, you who were once far off, you who were without hope and without Christ in the world, without God in the world, God has made you alive in Christ. He's made you his very own children who are to receive a glorious inheritance. It is to you, to God's redeemed children, to those who have been united to Christ by faith, that this call has come. It is because of who you are that Paul is so excited in his admonition. Paul knows that those who are being built into the temple of the Spirit will respond in faith and in works. Calling us to action is only fitting for creatures designed for every good work. We're therefore called to be what we've been made to be in Christ. This brings us to our second point. Namely, can I a man, can I a woman, can I a kid, can I as human who trusts in Christ, one who struggles with sin, can I walk in a manner that's worthy? Can we walk worthy? It's clear that Paul believes we can, but for the sake of the tender-hearted, we must venture into possible misunderstandings, right? And that's, this sounds like the law, it's scary, right? 
Some might ask, well, but I thought I was dead in sins and transgressions and unable to do anything good towards God. Paul does say that in Romans. And I thought that even now, as 4.13 says, that we as, uh, I think it's Philippians 4.13, uh, 4.13 says that as Christians we're unfinished products, right? The idea that uh, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And that's, you know, glass half full, half empty, right? Uh, you know, God is going to complete that work, but there's clearly work to be done, right? We're still sinners. We're simultaneously justified and sinner. Um, how, how can I be considered worthy when, you know, I see all my sin? And these are valid points, right? Pastorally, you need to consider that. Uh, we must take note of what the Bible means when it says worthy in 4.1. Does walk worthy mean that we are to walk in the worth that is in ourselves? Are we being called to walk worthy as though we, we like crawl up into the locomotive, we unhitch that and like suddenly we become one with the divine or something and no, no. Um, you know, we could, a good, a good thing to do usually when you study anything is define your terms. So we're gonna define terms maybe not in the best way. We're gonna look at a modern dictionary, but it's not a bad place to start. The New International Dictionary put out by Webster's, third edition, gives the following as a possible definition of worthy. Having worth, value, or importance. That is merit, right? And if you are a new believer and you walk into church and you read passages like this and you were a good student and you used your dictionary, that could be disturbing, right? That, hey, I'm going to walk worthy of the calling I've received by means of my own merit. Um, well, if that's what you understand worthy to mean here in Ephesians, then I'm talking to you. If you buy into that definition, how will you ever know once you've met up to that standard? How will you ever know if you're worthy? Are you ever going to measure up? Should you try harder? Should you give up? Well, I'd suggest to you that uh, you shouldn't give up. Okay. The King James Version, the New International Version, and other translations could give a foothold for such an interpretation. They read something like the following. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. From earlier on in Ephesians, we've seen that such worthiness is not found in us, and even as the redeemed of God, that sort of meritorious worth is not ours. Any kind of absolute worthiness that involves our own worth, value, goodness, you know, train going to heaven, abilities, is not helpful here. And it's not what the apostle envisaged. Okay? The word for worthy here is an adverb, and it's best rendered in a manner worthy of or worthily. This is how the NASB and the uh, American Standard Version translate this verse. Walk in a manner worthy. What does the uh, ESV have? This was a pre-ESV study. Walking, those ESV guys got it in this case. Good. Okay, I beseech you to walk worthily or to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you've received. Therefore, it's not referring to worth in the sense of self-worth or value. So can you walk worthily then? Yes. We remember in Ephesians 2.2 2, that we had once walked in accordance with this world and with the spirit of this world, namely Satan and disobedience. God then made those same corpses, us, alive together with Christ. He's now building you into a holy temple in which the spirit now dwells and abides. Now, rather than walk in accordance with this world and its spirit, we're now called to walk in accordance with our new world and the Holy Spirit in obedience. We can walk in accordance with heaven and the Spirit because the Spirit has taken Christ's merits and applied them to us. 
Our life now is a heavenly life. Our worth now is grounded in heaven above in Jesus. And it is from there that we receive our nourishment for obedience, the nourishment for walking worthily in now time. Nothing of this age can render the obedience that God demands. So nobody is worthy in the absolute sense except Christ. Yes, sir. Yeah, and that's the tension of the, I just don't get it, ism, right? I mean, I, I, I don't get it. Why, why would God do that? And it's certainly not anything in us, right? Um, Tom Tyson, uh, he, he's the guy that illustrated uh, G.I. Williamson's commentary on the Shorter Catechism. Uh, he was commenting on uh, just election. And he, he said he took his, uh, uh, his granddaughter to buy a Barbie, and they went shopping for Barbies, and, you know, it was a good time at Toys R Us, and all the Barbies were there, and Toys R Us was still in business. Um, now you just look on Amazon, and you just get what they give you. Um, but uh, she walked up, and she grabbed this Barbie box. And Tom Tyson already had one in the, in the shopping cart. And he's like, no, 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 we already got one. And her point was, I want this one. And his point, of course, was, but they're all the same. They're all Barbie. We all need like a blowtorch to get them out when we get at home, right? Um, and, but but there was something in the nature of that little girl that made her say, this one has meaning for me. Um, I, I don't understand God's ways in election. I'm not going to pretend. But. Well, just to expand on that, from the person Adam, you know, there are times when the I'd feel uncomfortable using those terms, but I get what you're saying. Yeah. I know, I know. Yeah. And I mean, that's the tension, right? Yeah. So you think about, uh, right, um, you know, Peter, uh, you know, the dream of the sheet falling down from heaven and, you know, don't, don't you call unclean what I've called clean. And so we need to, and you're right, you know, we need to let, let God be true and every man a liar. God says that you're righteous, believe it. Right? Not in the sense of, check me out, but as a signpost to Jesus. Okay? So maybe my uncomfortableness there, Mark, is the fact that I'm not comfortable thinking of myself as worthy. Right? Because of all the dangers associated with that. Alright, yes? No, it's that's so helpful. I mean, oftentimes. To me, that changes things. Not coming to me and saying, "Ralph, you're the greatest guy in the world, and I want you to know that, and you're worthy, and all that." I don't think that's what he's doing. 
It's pastoral. It's it's not a systematic theology. No, I think you're right. In terms of you know, it's it's. I'm kind of the the road we're going down kind of is systematic theological categories, and you're just saying like he is pastorally encouraging these people, right? All right, I'm gonna like shut down most questions because we got way too much to do, which isn't saying they're not valuable. Okay. Um. But we can walk worldly by God's strength. We can walk worldly because it's God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Therefore, walk worthily of the calling to which you've been called. So we've seen uh, that we're called to walk worthily and that we're able to walk worthily of the calling we received, which brings us to our third point. How do we walk worthily then? In 4.2, Paul begins to generally unpack his command to walk worthily of the calling which we received. Later we'll see that he uh, what he has in mind specifically. So here's 4.2. Walk worthily of the calling with which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Now which could, much could and should be said about each of these virtues individually, and I'm not going to unpack them. But uh, we do just need to see that these qualities are personified in the Lord Jesus. Okay, Humility. Christ is ultimately the humble one, right? Condescending from heaven to a trough. You know, Ephesians, uh, Philippians 2... He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. You know, we've got the incarnation. Secondly, gentleness. Jesus is the model for gentleness as he is the one who called us to take up his yoke upon him for he's gentle and humble in heart. Patience. Our Lord is patient. First Timothy 1.15 Yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost Jesus might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Jesus' patience is perfect. Bearing with one another in love, God bears with us, Romans 2.4. Now, not only are these, these virtues displayed in perfection in Jesus, but they're displayed in us. The Spirit has taken what is Christ's and applied it to us. Okay. Christ is the one righteous man, the second Adam, who fulfilled the covenant of works on our behalf, and he grants unto us the benefits of his labor. It is the Spirit that bestows these benefits upon us. These benefits of Christ are evidences of the Spirit's work in our lives. Notice the similarities in the commands of Ephesians 4.2 and the virtues that we know of as the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. we got love, patience, and gentleness in there. Um, in our calling to externally live out what is true of us internally, we're then called to participate in Christ's life. And this is what I want to focus on. You are called to participate in the life of Christ. We're told that we already participate in his glory in the heavenlies. Right? Ephesians 2.6, you're seated in the heavenlies. Uh, yet, we're also called to participate in his sufferings. Right? You are called to suffer with and for Christ. Philippians 1.29, For to you it has been granted, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. However, we cannot just say that we will suffer with him and leave it at that. We must suffer with him because we are participating in his life, namely his morality. Okay, You will suffer because of decisions you make as a believer. right? Your choice to not work on the Lord's Day, perhaps. Find your conscience on that issue, but it's a, it's a possibility, right? Maybe you're going to suffer. Um, your choice in terms of dating and relationships and you know honesty at work and business transactions. 
uh, when everybody realizes that you're not going to fudge the numbers, you're going to suffer. Okay? You're going to suffer. And if you're reflecting the moral nature of Jesus in the way that you are persecuted or you suffer, uh, that is suffering for Christ's sake. We will suffer because we live like Jesus. Indeed, Paul tells us, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Hey, there's more of that battle. You belong to Christ. You're going to be persecuted. Now, you know, First Peter, Second Peter, I don't recall which. Um, it, it does point out, hey, there is suffering for being a jerk, and that's not suffering for Christ. Get the two straight, right? <laughs> um, so don't suffer for, you know, ungodliness. Um, don't go trying to sanctify you being a despicable person. Oh, because I'm a Christian. No, it's because you're a jerk sometimes. And you need to repent of that because you're called to reflect the life of Christ. Okay? How do we walk worthily? We participate in Christ's moral life. And this isn't to deny that we participate in the blessings that Christ has achieved as our head. No. Earlier in the epistle, Paul spelled out how we have participated in Christ's exaltation in a measure now we're called to participate in his humiliation. This participation in Christ's life, in particular his morality, is the reason why Paul is so bold to mention his chains in verse 1. Right? You go looking through the commentators, and some of the more critical ones are looking at Paul, and they're like, oh, he's just trying to trump up sympathy. Right? Oh, me and my chains. Poor old Paul. Right? He's just trying to cow the Ephesians into action. But no, nothing could be further from the truth. Are we to believe that Paul, the Apostle of Christ Jesus, the one who calls us to imitate him because he imitates Christ, are we to believe that he's merely grandstanding for attention, trying to get us to open our wallets, as it were? Paul mentions his chains, not as a means of cowing us or getting more stuff out of his supporters, but Paul does that as proof that he himself is walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which he's been called. Paul's suffering post-meeting the resurrection Christ, uh, is suffering with and for Christ. Okay? The gospel uh, that has taken root in Paul's very heart of hearts, and this, it's taken root in Paul's heart of hearts, and this is what life of one who walks worthily looks like. Thus far, we've looked at what we're called to do as we walk worthily in general terms, namely to imitate Christ, Turn with me to 4.3 and we'll finish the sentence begin in 4.1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you all to walk worthily of the calling for which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We're admonished by God's apostle and thus by God himself specifically to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Notice first that we're called to preserve this unity not to establish it. It's a unity that has been previously established by Christ's work and is characterized by peace. Peace is that which holds our union with Christ, the basis of our unity with God and his church together. We have peace with God through Christ. Ephesians 2.14 For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. I can keep going, but we're not going to. Okay. Uh, this unity of the Spirit is a universal gift to the corporate church and to its individual members. This unity is as certain as the unity of the persons of the Trinity, 
and the unity of God's works. John Stott comments that this unity is as indestructible as God himself. And in verses 4 through 6, Paul lays out the nature of the body of Christ, the spirit, the hope of our calling, the Lord Jesus, the faith, baptism, and God. The nature of all of these is one. These verses are understood in a variety of ways by commentators, and I'm not sure what they mean in their entirety, so I'm not going to act like I do. But of this much we can be sure of. The unity that we are called to preserve is like unto the unity of the persons of the Trinity in their fellowship. It is in one nature, just it is one in nature, just as certainly as there is one church and one spirit. We've seen that the unity of the spirit is a universal gift of the church that is modeled on God's nature and God's works. This is a comfort to us, for we know that if the church's unity depended on us, it would look hopeless indeed. And while this is comforting, Paul intends this exhortation call us to action. The thrust of his call to be diligent in 4.3 is something like work hard, spare no effort uh, to preserve the unity of the Spirit. And although it's true that the unity of the church is fixed in the heavens, God calls us to display that unity here on earth. To keep this unity is to maintain it visibly. The pursuit of this unity is not a seasonal thing. We're told in 4.13 that we are to pursue this until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure and stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Now, beloved, I submit to you this day has not come. We await the last day for that day. But the unity to which we're called is external proof of internal realities. Jesus prays in his high priestly prayer in John, John 17, 21, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The world, which we seek to win for Christ, doesn't perceive internal realities. They're spiritually discerned. They don't get it. The stuff that gets us excited, the message of the blessed gospel of God for sinners like us, the world doesn't get that unless God, in the words of pastor, turns the lights on, right? But the world does understand what they see. They're very visual-based. They understand works. And they understand works because they're hardwired at creation by the covenant of works to see and to appreciate, right, visible results. When they see something different, they see something. They don't know what it is exactly that they see sometimes, but when they see in the life of the believer something different, they know they see something. And Jesus tells us that whatever it is they see testifies to them that he's from the Father. Having said this, what does it mean when we as the Church of Christ do not display the unity of the Spirit, when we do not maintain it visibly? If we live in disunity, it amounts to a practical denial of what God has made us to be. If we do not maintain visible unity, we're in fact saying that God's nature and work are not united and we're not a, are not a harmony. It's saying that Ephesians 2.14 is false. God has not made the two into one man. It's shouting out that the unity accomplished by Christ's shed blood on the tree is of no consequence to us. If we fail to maintain the unity of the body, perhaps we are chugging our own little choo-choo train to heaven and testify to the world that Jesus is not from the Father. By our actions, we even lie to ourselves about the unity that Christ has accomplished. Now, if you look at verses 4 through 6, certainly they, they safeguard against the idea of unity at all costs. And the ecumenical movement in the last 75 years has really majored, or 100 years now, has really majored in the idea that let's just all 
get together, doctrine divides, service unites, and then you find out that the service that unites is basically the Democratic Party's uh, political platform, right? And that's often, you go look at, you know, hey, we came out of the PCUSA in 1973, right? And go look at what they stand for. Um, they do have a lot of great creeds, but when you accept every creed, uh, if you believe in everything, you believe in nothing, right? And in terms of social issues, um, it's fine if you're a Democrat. I'm just pointing out that it is curious that, you know, so-called liberal political alignments and mainline churches have very much the same thing to say. And most smart liberals uh, that attend those churches, those churches' numbers are dwindling, and I don't say that those churches' numbers that are dwindling, it's because people aren't stupid. They're like, hey, if I can get the same thing out of the Kiwanis Club, maybe I'll go there. I won't have to tithe. Um, so there's that. Okay. Um, so I got sidetracked there. Paul is not talking about a mindless just, hey, we all got to say the same thing and act the same thing, and we're going to have unity at all costs, even if we, you know, forsake the truth. No. He certainly uh, safeguards against a sinful, haphazard, false unity that lacks any train, that lacks any gospel. But God has designed us for every good work. The gospel alone compels us to action, and in our lives, let us seek to walk worthily of the high calling which we've received. Strain all your energies toward the unity of the body which the Spirit has accomplished. Okay. Um, now, do we have time? Sure. We're going to address the most difficult passage in Ephesians in like 10 minutes. Um, so, you guys have some handouts, some of you do. Um, in chapter 4, verses 7 through 16, big picture realities, before we get to the nitty gritty and you know, it made me laugh as I was preparing this last night because Paul's emphasis on unity is the goal of the chapter, okay? But Christians have found a lot of disunity as to what this chapter means in specific points. So let's talk about big picture realities, okay? Chapter 4, verses 7, uh, he says, But grace was given to each one of us. One of us there I'm going to take to be referencing to verse 11. It's talking about the teaching body of the church. Grace has been given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So, Paul's saying that there's been grace given. There's been gifts given to the church. And the illustration he uses in verse 8 is this. This comes from Psalm 68. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, that quote, uh, Paul's picking up uh, the imagery of battle. When a king would go to battle, he would destroy and vanquish his enemies, his foes, and he would collect all the booty. And he would take the booty back and he would give that as a gift to his people to demonstrate his lordship, his kingship over his people and vanquishing his enemies. And Paul takes this passage and he applies it to Christ. And there's all kinds of interesting debates about what's Paul doing here? Did he misquote uh, the Psalms? Because if you go look at that in the New Testament quotation, it's different, okay? Long story short, Paul is reading this Christologically, okay? Paul is reading Psalm 68, and he is saying the Christ event has happened. Christ is the, uh, the, the stronger man in the Gospels who has gone and robbed the strong man and tied him up and taken his goods, and those goods God has given to the church through Christ. And so the question that we get to is, what are these gifts, right? And it says he goes into the ascending and the descending. We're not going to get into that. There's a lot of stuff there. Um, but let's look at verse 11. The gifts that he gives, and he gave apostles, 
the prophets, evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up the body of Christ. Basically, God is saying that Christ has went in, robbed Satan's storehouses, and he's gifting the church. He's gifting the church with two things. Teaching body of people, right? And, you know, all these uh, really quick uh, apostles and prophets. I don't have time to explain it, but uh, these don't exist anymore. This is a first century reality to jumpstart the church, okay? It doesn't exist anymore. Um, and we can get into that later if you want to come talk to me. Um, evangelists basically are you know, ordained missionaries that go out in the mission field. Um, shepherds, this, these are pastors, elders perhaps, and uh, then teachers is a special teaching ministry of the church. And there's, there's some fights to be had about some of that. Um, but that's my take on it. Um, so what I want you guys to think practically is that for Spring Meadows, God has gifted Pastor Tim Posey with gifts of ministry, personally for him. But also, the gifts aren't stuff, it's people, okay? So the gift to us is Pastor Tim Posey, okay? The teaching, the, the word-based officers in the church are the gifts that God gives to his church, okay? That is what Christ has accomplished, and he's given us gifts of grace. And what are they? Well, they're gifts to the church for the teaching ministry of the church. And what is that for? Well, it's for this. Uh, well, that's where we get in some controversy. Okay, um, It's to equip the saints for the work of ministry. I don't buy that, and I'll explain why quickly. Uh, for the building up of the body of Christ. Okay, Edification is the issue. Okay, Edification is the huge issue of the gifts that God gives to the church. Okay, um, Now, in terms of... Uh, the, you know, in this passage where God's calling for unity, you know, there, there is not, well, for, for most of the church's history, there has been pretty broad unity on this issue, okay? And I gave you guys some translations there of Ephesians 4.12. Um, there's, here's the crux of the argument, okay? The crux of the argument is, um, there is a word used in Greek in that form of that word used only one time in the New Testament. It's used here, okay? And, uh, you know, the verb is katartismon. Uh, um, usually it was uh, originally a, a medical term, medical term having to do with binding or healing a broken bone, okay? That's the general meaning of it. But in terms of, you know, there's, there's a lot of possible translations of how we could go with that word, okay? Uh, I, I broke these down into pre-1970 and post-1970 versions. Uh, we'll take... 1611 authorized version or King James this is in the center of your first page there. The way it takes this is, you know, all of these word-based teaching dudes uh, in chapter 11 moves into chapter 12 and Paul says, for the perfecting of the saints, comma, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So on the old version, the pastor's job is to perfect, to present you complete at the day of Christ Jesus, Right? Not morally perfect you, but to make you complete, make you prepared, make you ready for the last day. Okay, Comma, for the work of ministry. Well, that's what the pastor does, the work of ministry. And then for the edifying of the body of Christ. That's the purpose of the pastor. Okay, uh, Around 1970-ish, most modern translations, they go with what you have in the ESV. To equip his people for works of service, so the body of Christ may be built up. So it has very different impacts in terms of your model of ministry in the church. 
And the truth of the matter be, uh, ministry models are one of the biggest golden calves in the church, okay? And I say that to you as someone who shines this golden calf regularly, because my golden calf is the pre-1970 version. And uh, But here, here's the deal. Um, and I want to talk to you guys, and these are things that Christians genuinely disagree about, okay? And I'll confess I'm probably in the minority here. Um, but it's a great time to talk about how do we go about interpreting our Bibles, right? Um, the principle that we use as Reformed people is that Scripture interprets Scripture, right? And sometimes there are hard passages that use language or grammar in ways that we can't verify with other usages, and so you give it your best college try, right? Um, but it's not just your best college try. You're going you're gonna to interpret Scripture with similar passages. Um, so if that's true, um, there's a couple things we need to watch out for. When we find difficult passages in Scripture, and there's only a limited amount of data to deal with, what's really tempting, really tempting, is to look maybe inside, maybe look outside, find something that's attractive to you, okay? And so on the back, I made a little, you know, chart, some possible implications of the, you know, possible interpretations of this passage, okay? Um, and I, I hope I'm not being too, I mean, to be honest, I'm really, you know, I'm, I'm over here, and I make no qualms about that. But I, I have many good brothers that uh, are on the other side, and I, and I respect them, and they've gotten there by interpreting significant passages of Scripture, I believe, okay? However, there's always examples of people who get somewhere not by interpreting the passages of Scripture. They get there by, well, hey, let's look at the fact that, ooh, how about this one? When we talk about evangelism, um, I'm, I'm not mathing well. Exponential growth, right? If we could say everybody's a minister, exponentially, and, uh, I know I'm touching some golden calves here, right? Uh, exponentially, it's going to make the church grow faster. And Okay, that might be true, um, but is that, ex is that based on the interpretation of Scripture or is that based on knowing how math works? Question we've got to ask, okay? Um, other ones egalitarianism, the idea that everybody's equal. And this is a huge, big idea in the American experiment as a government. It's a great idea, right, for many things. But should that be how the ministry of the church works? Should we call every member a minister, right? If you get to the every member a minister approach by means of buying into egalitarianism, hook, line, and sinker, well, you got some repenting to do. If you got there on the basis of, I believe that's what the scripture teaches clearly, praise God, good for you. Um, so there's just some criticisms and stuff like that. I would point out that these two positions, uh, you know, some churches and people might be somewhere in between the two, okay? But just sort of getting some ideas out there for you guys to think about. And I apologize that we don't have time to deal with that. Um, but let's think about the things in common, regardless of which view you hold. If you have a high view of Scripture, these are things in common. I just said there's a... You could be somewhere on the, yeah. Personally, I'm not a fan of both. I'm way over here. But I, I, I'm saying there are good brothers who, who are of both, right? And you, they might be in this building. I'm guessing most of them are. Um, but uh, I, I just don't see it, okay? Um, so, and interesting enough, you know, yeah, we won't go there. Um, so, these are things that are in common. Christ is the head of the church for both of these parties. We should be glad for God's gifting of us with our pastor, 
Every believer is responsible to use his or her particular gifts for the glory of God in the edification of the body. Edification is the key word here. We need to be seeking out to do those things that we're edifying, which made me think, should I bring this up at all, right? But um, they're difficult parts of Scripture, and we need to learn how to wrestle with them. And I hope that we've done that. Um, we're all to witness to Christ and the unity of his body. These things that are true regardless of the perspective you take on 412 of Ephesians. Uh, so, two of the most difficult passages, perhaps in the New Testament, but definitely in Ephesians, is uh, 4.12 and 4.7, and uh, you got them in 10 minutes. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks that our victor, the Lord Jesus, has come and has done final last day battle with Satan and the powers of darkness, and he has vanquished his foes, and he comes and he gives to us preachers and missionaries and apostles and prophets, and although some of these offices are no longer with us today, they have laid a foundation which is glorious and good in your sight. And we pray for our uh, teaching of the word, officers, that they would be a blessing to us, that uh, we would receive their words as a gift to us, not to glorify them or you know, glorify the cleric, but to glorify Christ, who for your own purposes has been seen fit, to deliver the message of salvation for wretched sinners through wretched sinners. What a mystery that is, and we love you, Lord. Bless your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.